can see the demon in you that doesn't wanna come out and play. I can see the demon in you who doesn't wanna come out and play. Everybody say fuck this shit. Fuck this shit. Fuck this shit. Man, fuck this Everybody shit. say fuck this shit. Man, fuck this shit. Fuck this shit. Man, fuck this Everybody shit. Everybody say. the fuck this shit podcast i'm your host dre back again as always we start the podcast the same way thank you for taking the time out to listen we appreciate by we i mean myself you know it ain't no it ain't no big band back here i appreciate y'all taking the time out to listen uh i appreciate everybody who subscribed for the 4.99 even though i've been killing y'all on your bonus content but i'm literally about to drop y'all two bonus episodes tonight so the same time that this real episode is coming out for everybody, it's going to be some bonus content for y'all who pay the four ninety nine. Um, it's going to be another episode for y'all who pay the regular coming up or who don't pay nothing coming up soon. I got y'all. I've been really heavy focused on the YouTube. Um, it's, it takes, it takes a lot of work to go between both. Uh, I'm definitely going down to one episode a week. Uh, dedicated on the podcast but absolutely go check out the youtube fts network i'm literally putting out five videos a week on the youtube on top of doing the podcast it's still just me doing all of it you know what i'm saying so y'all i'm I'm not giving you less content i'm giving you more i'm just kind of putting it in different places you know what i'm saying so rock with your boys you're not already subscribed to the uh to the youtube that's fts network Go check that out, man. It's interviews on there, sports stuff on there, reactions. We got a new web series, uh, top 50-ish black TV shows. I'm going to drop one of those. Uh, I'm going to drop the audio for one of those in the um, the bonus episodes for y'all who paid the 4 so y'all get the audio of that. Um, but, yeah, it's all kinds of stuff. It's an interview I'm about to drop y'all in the bonus episodes. I told you I was going to do the interview with my homegirl who was like 30 years old and still a virgin. I did that interview. It's already up on the YouTube for anybody who uh, who doesn't pay the 4 dollars If you do pay the 4 dollars that'll be up. If you listen to this, you'll be able to listen to the other one pretty much back to back. Um, that'll be up tonight for y'all. So you'll be able to listen to that. Matter of fact, I'll even put it up since they on the, uh, the pay joints. I'll put them up with video on Spotify. So if you listen on Spotify, you'll be able to watch uh, anything that I give y'all. On your bonus stuff. So, you know, I appreciate y'all rocking with me today. I know y'all like, man, you're doing all this talking. What is this interview about today? I got my homegirl. This is Bailey Perkins, right? Um, she and I, we went to, uh, we went to high school together, middle school together. Um, we weren't like best friends or anything, but our last names are really close to each other. So we sat next to each other and everything. And we had maybe one or two classes here and there. And we had some overlapping friend groups, um, I would I would consider us like not close friends or really good acquaintances if you want to put it that way. You want to like put a measure on it. I would say friends. I would say friends because I I gave a fuck about Bailey's day. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and Bailey was always good people, far as I was concerned. So um, yeah, um, as we got older, you know, basically just via social media, I got to see all the different things that she had been doing, um, doing all kinds of different advocacy work for different states and. Working in all these different avenues. She moved to D.C. for a little while. And there's just a lot of different things that she had done and accomplished in life that I thought 
made her a great candidate for the podcast. I reached out. She agreed to do it. I brought her on. Um, I will say that this interview taught me something about me as an interviewer is that I have to be more intent on hitting everything I want to talk about and not just letting a conversation get so free. Not because it's not great content, because it is, and it's a really good conversation. But I knew she would be on a time schedule. And it's really, in my opinion, a part of a conversation. We really didn't get to finish and really get to really talking about it because she only had that hour. But um, what we did get was great. It really was. We got to talk about a lot of different perspectives, what it's like growing up black in Oklahoma all together, um, different pathways to get to a different position. She talks about um, different scholarships and things like that that she was able to get. And I think that hearing that part of it is important because a lot of times I don't, I think that we're told, you know, get scholarships, do this or whatever, but you don't realize hey, how attainable it is and how much that can benefit you in the long run. Um, so that on top of just working as a lobbyist within Oklahoma, getting things done with people who maybe she doesn't align with politically because that's what she has to do in that space. Um, kind of giving a lens into what that really looks like instead of people feeling like, man, people really aren't trying. They're not getting anything done instead of understanding the barriers that they have within that. Um, her being a black woman, just things that she's dealt with in that space It is a great interview. Um, I won't hold up too much more of y'all's time. I'm going to go ahead. Uh, we'll cut to a short little break and we will get right into the interview. Bailey, thank you once again. I appreciate you so much for coming through. Um, and we will definitely have you back because we've got, this is a conversation that we've got to continue. It was, it was great. And, um, I look forward to part two. All right. I told you we had another special guest this week. Uh, without further ado, uh, strategist, strategist, organizer, consultant, policy advocate, the girl who sat right next to me at all of the high school events because our last names are so close to each other. So I like to think that I really rubbed off on her. You know, I have something to do with this. This is this is Bailey Perkins, right? You got to say the whole thing like a tribe called Quest. I saw the post. I know. <laughs> How are you, Bailey? <laughs> I am good, Dre. It is exciting to get a chance to talk with you on your podcast. And uh, I don't know if the listeners know this or not, but you were one of the smartest folks that I went to school with. So, oh. I mean, it was just always cool to <laughs> to be around you. And, and now it's cool, you know, what, full circle 12 years later, we're yeah, it's been talking about life together. So it's it's a cool thing. Well, thank thank you for the for the props. You know, I, I you know they say men don't know how to take compliments, so you know I I, I try and just say thank thank you. I appreciate it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I uh, I invited you on here because I I think you're interesting. You know, that's why I invite people on the podcast more than anything because I think that you've done things that a lot of people haven't done, and that you know things that some people might know might not know. You know, that's not um. I think a lot of times people see, a lot of times people don't understand that there's people around you and they may not have, they may not be like actually famous or anything like that, but they've actually done things that have given them a life experience that's valuable for other people to kind of hear 
how they went on through that. So we talked about kind of like being in high school and middle school together and all those things. So we grew up in the same town, uh, you know, Lawton, Oklahoma, for the, for those of you who don't know. Um, what was what was that like kind of for you? I mean, everybody who listens to the podcast kind of knows what that was like for me. But how was what was kind of like your, your early life in, in Lawton? What was that like? So Lawton shaped me in so many different ways. And prepared me for things to, you know, be mindful in life, right? Um, I remember having, for instance, like Mr. Kukinka's um, history class. Yeah. And I mean, and, and that class really built my interest on um, going into politics, but even tying the historical context to it, right? One of the things that he used to always say in class was, you know, the government's role or responsibility that people want them to do is to serve, protect, and leave alone, right? And that's, yeah. uh, you know, a yeah. lens that I've always thought about, you know, the especially the work that I do now. And so uh, growing up at Eisenhower, I was really involved in all the things from, you know, sports to um, different clubs and, and even just programs outside of the state that, you know, I was set to do like youth leadership Oklahoma, um, to where I had friends from, you know, other parts of the states when I was a junior in high school that I'm still friends with today, right? So there's just so much that I owe to Lawton. And I feel like growing up in a military town, we got to know so many different people Definitely. from so many different walks of life, especially Eisenhower, right? We really um, did. Because even like in the the time that we went, the way the lines were drawn, I mean, we had kids who, you know, English may not have been their first language. We had kids who, you know, literally from all over the country who have been to places around the world, um, kids who were affluent and kids Mm. who may have worn the same shoes, you know. all semester right Mm -hmm. and so having those different yeah yeah and uh, Mm -hmm. having those different experiences um with with friendships with worldviews um is something that also i feel like helped me prepare for um expanding my mind and perspectives about you know the things that people experience in this life so um you know i i always say that good things come from lawton and I feel like you, you and I are reflections of that. Yeah. Um, and I'm always finding different ways to connect the lens that I gained from my upbringing and Lawton to the work that I do, or even just like seeing people often, you know, that either have ties to Lawton that I may have gone to school with or whatever. There's a whole lot of us in the Oklahoma City metro or yeah, I, I lived in D.C. for a little bit met people who had ties to, to Lawton or had been to Lawton due to military or family or whatever. Oh, yeah. You meet people who so, know about Fort Sill. Yes. You meet a lot of people when you tell them you're from a military town. Because a lot of times when you're from Lawton, you don't tell people where you're from. They're like, where right. are you from? You're like, I'm from Oklahoma. They're like, where in Oklahoma? You'd be like, it's like an hour south from Oklahoma City. Like, I'm going to tell you Lawton. It's not going to, I can tell you I'm from Lawton. They ain't going to tell you nothing. Like, I'm not ashamed. It's just not really a value to you if you're not from the area. Um, but when you tell me from a military base and you, they got some military family, a lot of times they'll, uh, they'll know Fort Sill. Oh, for sure. For um, sure. And, and I think that's just something that I'm grateful to. And even just some of our 
local experiences growing up. We had so many memories because there wasn't a whole lot, even, you know, back when we were young for youth. So we had to create things for ourselves and do things that were fun. So never forget from the house parties we would go to, to uh, hanging out at what we call what the the old Walmart versus the new Walmart, (laughs) you know? And I'm pretty sure that's still language today, right? The yeah, man. We sound, I know we, they're like, y'all is, country, um, y'all got two Walmart, y'all, the, y'all the, the got differentiators between the Walmarts. Like, listen, listen, we got what we got. No, uh, remember when we thought it was, we were big stuff when we got Olive Garden, right? Like, and that was what, our senior year? We was, we was a place now. We got people come, we got our Olive Garden. You can't tell me nothing. We got a Starbucks in my community, like. Listen, and we all, we had two, and we couldn't even hold up two Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, right, um, right. But one thing you said earlier, yeah, right. One thing you said early on that kind of like stands out to me, and you mentioned it really coming right on, and I, I think it's worth mentioning because, I think a lot of times people don't. There's there's a lot of. How can I put this? There's a lot of narratives that people are really comfortable with and they 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 understand those archetypes a little bit better. Like people who go through school and they not that smart, so they kind of struggle through school or maybe they have like bad home lives. So like they have all these other things or whatever. And I think due to that, there's kind of a segment where you don't really have a lot of modeling. And I feel like personally, I kind of fall into that because like you said, I am really smart. Um, and I actually, you were the person in school who didn't have to try. You wouldn't study. We Mm -mm. take the same test, even though I studied for hours (laughs) and somehow you get a higher grade than me and I would never understand. Right. But that's just because of the way your mind works. You're you've always been brilliant. But so the thing is that the world doesn't actually reward that in the way that you would think it does. The world actually rewards discipline. Yeah. And because of that, I I grew up with all of the I was walking in, taking even up until there's there's a story. I've told this on the podcast before, but my my senior year, um, they called me to the office almost at the end of it because I had only been to like 23 full days of school the second semester of senior year, like between skipping this class or that class or going whatever. And my first hour was Mr. Bear's AP economics class. Mm. So I go to his class and his class is one of the ones I was skipping the most because it's first hour. I mean, I'm not, I'm It's I'm, early. It's early. <laughs> it's early, Bailey. Just to, just to keep it real, it's early. So I'm skipping this class and I show up one day on Fridays because on Fridays he had cookies. Mm. So I came for the cookies on Friday. And he's passing out this uh, this AP uh, practice test that day. So I took it because I was there that day and I passed it. And he was, it was like the weirdest feeling because he was just like, why are you like this almost? You know what I'm saying? Like as, and yeah. I, I'm going to say for what it is, like as an old white man watching me sit up there and piss away all this potential, like I just feel like that just burned him up. Like he just couldn't understand like, yeah. how are you both of these things? And they called all my teachers and my mom and all that to the school and all this other stuff or whatever, whatever. But I never got the messaging that how smart you are isn't going to be enough. I had to figure that out grown. I had to get grown and figure out that it's 
being the smartest person. Because Dre, the reality is, is because for some of our white peers, being smart enough or having the the minimum can be fine to get you what you need, right? That's true. For us, the knowledge and the skill is is foundational. Like there's other stuff we have to have on top of that in order to prove that we have the capability to do different things. And so 100%. you're you're absolutely right that like passing those those rigorous AP exams was was ju- just not enough for for black mm-hmm. kids, right? <laughs> nah. I mean, I mean when you get when you get grown it's like there's not even there's so many instances where what's in between you and what you want you will actually won't even really get to demonstrate what you can do. Sure. It will be more built on, even in my opinion, the the idea that you need a degree to do a lot of things is not really about the information that you learn there because whatever career you're going to do, they're going to have to teach you everything once you get there anyway. It's more about proving that you can sit down and learn something. Like, do well, and, you have... and developing a, a global citizen and a broad range of knowledge about a lot of things to give you problem solving skills, yeah. not a specific yeah. skill to do a specific job. Yeah. You're right. It's, that's it's that's like, not the job of college. No. Nah. Yeah. It's it's like, do you have the like you said, do you have these other skills? Can you do it's it's more about showing that you have that discipline. That's why the discipline, I, now, yeah, now that I'm older, one thing that I never let my kid do that I did, because Brie is smart. I that's don't let child. her do that's the the not doing of the extra things, the absence sure. of extracurriculars, like that yeah. is foundationally important to me. Um, and the only reason like why- Like you said, it's the, it's the discipline that you get from it. It's mm-hmm. the camaraderie and those soft skills and those other things that you get that wrap around to an experience. To your point that being smart enough just doesn't get you. It doesn't get you so, all that. Mm-mm. It doesn't. But okay, so high school, Lawton, we 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 learn all this stuff. We we mad disciplined in high school. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. As, as much as you uh, were talking about how smart I was, you were definitely, absolutely one of the top students. Uh, at well, and and I may have been, you know, okay, you know, in in my smarts, but like I feel you on. I a lot of people don't know this, but I was in the same boat as you. I may not have missed as many days of school. But my parents received that call senior year saying uh, Bailey missed two days of school and she's not going to graduate. Even though I had, you know, a weighted, not not unweighted, but a weighted GPA of 3.8. I was at all of these clubs, but all of the things that I was pushing myself to do was taking me away from that requirement of the days of being in school. And so uh, my dad had to have yeah. a conversation with the principal and all of that, like, no, my child's gonna graduate. Yeah, yeah, she's yeah. She's not at school, but she's at school <laughs> stuff. You know what I'm saying? This is yeah, school adjacent yeah. when she's not here. So you left. So, you, on them. so mm-hmm. we graduate. You go to college. Yeah, we did. Mm-hmm. Um, where'd you go to college? How was college? Talk, talk to us about. So the interesting experience about being from Lawton, right? Um, every Lawtonian youth experiences the mindset of, I want to do what I got to do to get out of Lawton. Right. Um, Because many of us didn't feel like we could reach our full potential in Lawton or didn't have the things that we desired. 
Yeah. And I felt that way about Oklahoma as a whole. Cause I was like, I'm getting out of here. I thought I was so. going to be Bailey, the Baylor bear. I just had it <laughs> set in my head. And when, and thankfully I'm blessed because I had an older sister who mm. was able to forge a trail for me, who was able to hit those bumps in the road to see that hindsight, to tell me these are things you're going to do. Right. Yeah. Um, Cause even like thinking about not being smart is not enough because like our high school counselor only told me to take the ACT our senior year. I took it twice and I'm not a test taking is not my thing. Right. Yeah, I'm and that's a thing. That great is at studying and all of that. I get nervous with test taking. Right. Mm-hmm. And so my ACT was not that great at yeah. all. It was, it was enough to get me, and to the schools that I wanted to go to. It yeah. wasn't enough to get me the scholarship money that I needed because mm, um, yeah. my parents were were far from affluent, right? Yeah. And so um, my sister said, Bailey, you're gonna stop being silly and you're gonna apply for this Claire Looper scholarship. And I was like, I guess, at, at Oklahoma City University. Yeah. And so I uh, applied and was accepted. And at that time, the Looper scholarship covered um, room and board, it covered Ooh. tuition, it covered fees, um, and then it also covered our meal plan. So, I mean, it was it was a full ride scholarship. Yeah, and that's, I'll that's never everything. forget everything. That's and everything. I'm just really blessed because I wouldn't have applied and I wouldn't have done that if my sister didn't say, get it together, you're going to the school. Because I had this mindset, oh, I'm just getting out of Oklahoma, but it was really the best experience that's what we all want to do coming from being from somewhere like oklahoma and i feel like a lot of that is being black in oklahoma you don't want to be here it's a weird place to grow up i do and and we'll kind of get into this a little bit more i do think that it actually gives us a much softer gaze on white people than people think it does like i think that people would think growing up black in oklahoma would make you kind of like have like a sourness towards white people but it's actually not that it's like i grew up around white people i understand you know saying even even when Trump gets elected president, I feel, side note, were you surprised when Trump won? Because of the shifts in the country? No. Uh, someone framed it into this way, and this has stuck with me since then. Anytime there is progress, particularly in the black community, there's always backlash in some type of form. Always. Right? So, you know, when integration, happened what happened black teachers lost their jobs black students were put into white spaces and that has created you know inequity sense in different ways right um when we had the first black president of the united states elected as president what happened right we elected someone who and we as in you know this country elected someone who was speaking to whiteness and white values right because white people felt like they were being left behind in different ways and so he was Mm -hmm. speaking to um, a different identity and so that doesn't surprise me at all that there was this shift of looking for someone who wasn't a part of the political fray um who was Mm -hmm. willing to quote unquote speak his mind who was a, a political outsider um and then even the the events from January 6th, I, I, when there's a moment to talk about that, I'll talk about why that affected me 
personally, personally right yeah we we will we will absolutely circle yeah. back to that um the the i feel like the people who were surprised don't didn't grow up in places like where we grew up because they don't know the mm-hmm. people who they don't know the people who will they don't know the white youth minister who's proud of all the black kids who come to his services who will absolutely go vote for donald trump right you know what I'm saying? Like, they don't know that guy, but it's like, I right. do. Like, I know several of those guys. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, I know lots of people who are in spaces where it's like they walk on this ground where, like, I don't I don't really agree with this, but I will still do whatever anyway. Like, I just think that we kind of have a better understanding of that than other people. But, but the whole point really was about how it also gives us a kind of want to escape because mm-hmm. what we don't really get is big spaces beyond beyond church we don't really have any big spaces of blackness where it's like these are our spaces where we do you know i'm saying anything where we have anything like that it's not a lot of that here right i think that kind of drives us to to want to go a little bit but you uh well and i mean and when you think about it like the history of oklahoma right we were um, at one point intended to be a black state, right? There was pushes of that from ancestors, right? Yeah. To where we have more all black towns historically than any other place in the country, right? Mm-hmm. We had black Wall Street in Tulsa where the dollar would touch 11 times in that community before going outside. That community was self-sufficient. Crazy. You had people thriving and then what happened? It was literally burnt to the ground right? Literally 101 years ago, right? Um, To where there are people living today who were affected by that massacre, right? Because sometimes we look at things as so distant, but the reality is is all of those things still interplay into why um, there's been so much disparity and destruction, right? To our, I mean, our governments actively participated in destroying Greenwood. And they received no compensation for it. Their insurance requests were denied, right? Mm-hmm. When you look at uh, redlining and different things, Norman was a sundown town, right? There's just the first law in Oklahoma's books. And if you go into the state capitol, they have a beautiful um, museum about mm-hmm. the construction of the capitol building and some of the history of our state. There's um, a document in there um, in the museum that shows like the first law in the books in Oklahoma was segregation, right? That's telling about where the I priorities are that. of the state, right? Um, and some of those things, you know, perpetuate. So, because the thing is, is like when you implement policy, just because you change something doesn't mean it magically goes away. Sometimes there are structures in place a lot that of times. reinforce themselves. And that's mm-hmm. what we see for the disparities that black and brown people um, face in our state. So to your point, Dre, it does feel like there weren't things here for us because they were literally destroyed. Literally. <laughs> so literally burnt to the uh, Like it doesn't feel that way. It is that way. Because, it is. yeah, I mean, and that's. Because I mean, on my father's side, I'm fifth generation Oklahoman, right? Um, yeah we were able through some distant family able to track my family lineage to where my great times five grandmother was brought here on a slave ship and enslaved in virginia 
and then she had a daughter and then they were taken from Virginia to Georgia and then from Georgia to Texas because she had because her daughter had a son. Right. So my great times three grandfather was Mm -hmm. freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. And then he and his daughter, my great times two grandmother, came on a wagon train of families up to Oklahoma. Right. So one of those historics, uh, all black towns, because that was seen as the great opportunity for black folks to achieve that American dream. You know what I mean? And so um, our ancestors worked hard to try to create space and opportunities for us, but those racism Tear stuff down. It continues to prevail. Yeah, that's the that's it's crazy when you can put a specific example on it like that because I I feel a lot of times when we say stuff like this or you try and explain little different things that happen that have impacted your family in, in different ways, it's it's frustrating to try and to explain to somebody who doesn't have any context of it. And a lot of that is why the stuff that you see going on with education bothers me so much because I already grew up in a place with all this history that I didn't know anything about until I was grown. It was not part of our Oklahoma history class. What I and, do and, remember and from my here, Oklahoma history I know what you're about to say was, was what? Were we in that class together? In I, I don't, we weren't in it together, but we both had it. What do you I remember? The first day he taught us how to tie a noose. To, I, see? On the first day of class. And I remember feeling so uncomfortable and telling my parents about it. And my dad had to march up to the school because I had the highest grade in that class and I had a C. Everybody else had like D's and F's because, and then he didn't teach us anything about the black history of Oklahoma. We didn't learn about the all black towns. We definitely didn't learn about the Tulsa race massacre, right? Only black and people so I knew that's about in Oklahoma was on that news. Uh, let, let Mr. Miller tell it. The only black people in Oklahoma was on the end of that news. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, that was a real experience. Shit. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. We, we didn't learn anything about our identity and how we contribute. And mind you, I learned in my family history my relative integrated Oklahoma State University. She was the first black graduate, Nancy Randolph Davis, right? Like, gang, gang. didn't learn anything about that in school, no. though. Nothing. Nothing. Mm-mm. It's, it's, it's crazy. The, we didn't learn anything about Clara Looper. We didn't learn anything about Roscoe Dungeon. Did you know that Clara Looper held protests in Lawton to integrate... Um, Dodo Park. No. So in Lawton, Lawton had a I, I know about Dodo Park a though. racially segregated pool that only white people could go to on Sheridan, I believe. Because uh, it's where those apartments are where that Burger King is. Now. Or is it on a is that yeah, it is on Sheridan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dodo Park was on Sheridan. Or off Sheridan. And it's wild because one day I was reading in the Lawton Grapevine because I keep in touch with it and, and you know, read in so. there because even when it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there were people even writing in there because there were people who were adults now who were children at Dodo Park who had no idea that there were kids who were barred from going there, right? All they knew is, oh, I'm going to a park and I remember playing in it, what it looked like. They had no idea the racial trauma 
that that park was causing, right? And how and deep so that was, because that man closed it down when he said he had to let niggas in it. Exactly. He was like, it's cool. Exactly what happened. I don't even need the money. And he I'll, closed it. I'd rather go broke. And That's today there's crazy. an apartment complex on it. And so, um, I mean, there's crazy just so how much deep history. that runs. Mm-hmm. It's crazy how deep that would even run in you for you to say. And this is one of the things I think is crazy because I always have said that I feel like one of the biggest fears that white people have about black people wanting all of this equity and equality is that if the tables were turned, we would do the same thing. But it's like, no, we wouldn't. Like, I can't even imagine a black man owning a park and being like, I'm not going to let nobody in here who got the money to pay. We taking everybody's dollars. Even if even if we don't like you, we still taking your dollars. Well, but Trey, I don't even think it's on an individual level, right? Nah. We're talking about economic systems, right? True. Because slavery was designed as a way to create a workforce system of free labor for white male property owners to gain wealth, right? True. And that's how a lot of people have sustained wealth and legacies has been from the institutions of slavery. Because you can't just up and one day say, okay, my bad, we gonna stop. Like that doesn't bring equity, right? Because uh-uh. those folks who were created to have that advantage continue to have that advantage generationally. And, it and grows so So we're talking about like systems and structures that continue to perpetuate each other and like just ignoring it doesn't fix it. And so I think that's part of the problem. For example, there's a conversation about like reparations in Tulsa to where you got leaders who are like, it's off the table because they feel like, well, we're going to build these economic development projects and therefore that's going to bring equity to everybody. And that's not how that works. It's not. I was even and having a conversation. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. that's not how that works. That's, that's, that's saying we're going to gentrify your area and call it represent, uh, call it reparations. Like I ain't stupid. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's how sometimes I feel like the shit they say to us is like, you are banking on the fact that you didn't educate us. You're banking on the fact that we don't know how this works. Yeah, especially like for people losing their homes today, right? There are these folks in these we buy homes or whatever, taking your home that's probably worth, you know, what, let's say $100,000, buying it from you for $30,000 and then flipping that home and then selling it for $300,000 or turn it into an Airbnb or whatever. And now you got people who are stuck who can't afford to, you get what I'm saying? And so- And now um, you even got this $30,000 check, but now you're a renter and you, you know what I'm saying? Now the rent going up, like it's just, it's never, it never actually- It puts us further behind. Exactly, under the Mm -hmm. guise that is gonna do- Help us out. Exactly. So, okay, Back, back, back to you specifically. Let's let's, yeah. let's backtrack a little bit. So you go to school. What was your major? What did you graduate? What what was your uh, what is your actual what is your degree in? Yes. Yeah, so I mentioned I went to Oklahoma City University mm-hmm. as a Clara Looper scholar, and I'll never forget. You know, tying back to our Lawton conversation, I told one of my teachers my senior year that I was going to Oklahoma City University. You know what her response to me was? What? Oh, that's an expensive school. That's a comment that would not have been said to one of our white peers. But the thing is, is like, I, you know, I didn't come up from a a wealthy household, right? So it wasn't expected of me to go to a school like Oklahoma City University. But I am grateful for- Which is ridiculous though, because Mm -hmm. just just for 
for clarification as someone who went to school with you, it's not like when 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 you talk about and when I talk about not being one of the affluent families, one of the rich families that we went to school with, neither one of us was the kids who was wearing the same clothes to school every day. Like we both grew up fine. Like we was comfortable. Like isn't like but like paying for college for a kid is just not something within the bound. That's just an American fallacy that because your family is like a middle class family, they'll be able to pay for you to go to college. You're saying that's just not Absolutely. true. So Absolutely. for her to even read that on you as though you presented as a way, you know what I'm saying? Like the way that we presented at school, there would be no yeah. reason for them to even know what level of comfort or middle class we really resided in when we left out right. of there. You know, black people spend more on stuff like that anyway. Like these white kids coming in here with these dirty ass shoes on, do you just assume they got money on? Because you know what I'm saying? And like we out here with all this money worth of clothes on, whether or not we could afford it or not. You like, yeah, that's an expensive school for one of y'all. Like, oh, good talk. It's, was it's, it an English it's teacher? Just... It was a math teacher. It was a so, math teacher. I was trying was to guess who it teacher. was. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, so went to OCU, and, and my scholarship required us to. Um, we got to pick whatever majors we wanted to be a part of. That's one thing I love about the scholarship program because it was lovely. really focused on um, bringing underrepresented students the opportunity to get a quality education, right? And so the requirement was, you know, we had meetings for our scholarship program and then we had to do a number of community service hours um, per year. And so um, I was actually originally a music major at OCU. Which is not surprising. Um, so I found out that um, I had nodules on my vocal cords because like sometimes my voice would be super raspy because Drab, I'm sure you remember I used to play on uh, the volleyball team. I'm yeah. always, always, always a talker. Mm -hmm. And um, I was always like, yelling and stuff and so i think over time those things were just kind of damaging in my vocal cords and so uh. i had to go through speech therapy they said you know over time if they look and they're still there then i would have to have them like surgically removed um i had to stop eating stuff like ketchup because like tomatoes or vocal irritants and i was just like i'm not about to live my life like this like as much I as i love music i'm not gonna live my life like this and so um, i changed my That's major crazy. and that is crazy I, that that is how that happened. That is actually, yeah, yeah. That's such a I, like. That's I so it's so random. There, but, yeah, it is. It's very random. Because um, I mean, like, I was for real singing, y'all. Like, I was yeah. all state vocalist in college. I mean, high school and all all the things. Like, I I was really prepared for a career in music, but I took um, a political science class, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I've always had a lens for justice i've always had a lens for using my voice to make a difference so if i saw something that wasn't right i was never afraid to speak up i was always involved in like the student council stuff and all of that but and i loved my government class i had a um, government class my senior year because i think yeah the senior year we required to take government and i yeah. liked it and so i decided that my major would be uh political science and then i minor well i'm sorry double major in political science and history Okay. Um, and so my original plan was I was going to go to law school. And um, number one, I took the LSAT and it was not the best score. Because <laughs> I thought I'm not, just not so taken. But secondly, I had my history professor who was just incredible. I think a lot of my journey has been I've had the right people 
giving me the right guidance and the right advice at the right time. So I told you about my sister. That is telling me to take the scholarship. And that's the reason why I was at OCU, right? Yeah. My history professor said, listen, I know what you want to do. Don't go to law school, save that money, get you a master's of public administration degree, find a graduate assistantship to help you pay for it. So you can keep money in your pocket and still do the things you want to do. And so I took that advice and I went to OU for my master's of public administration degree and my concentration was public policy um, because I loved that change making space. And then I learned more deeply through my graduate studies that analysis, policy analysis was the area that I wanted to make the most difference because A, there weren't a lot, there's not a lot of people who look like us in the space of shaping policy and analyzing the impacts of what these decisions have on us and knowing what the data says, right? And I've interpreting what it means like for that our communities. has to be a big part of it that people don't see, which is that, cause, cause like, man, I'm all, <laughs> I, for me, and it's crazy to say this. I have always felt like one of the biggest barriers to like progress in a lot of instances is the well-meaning white person who just don't know no better. And That's it's it. like, if you're trying to help a community without anyone from the community to tell you how to administer that help, it doesn't really matter how, how much you want to do it. You probably going to exactly miss, it. you're going to miss the mark in a lot of different That's ways. Exactly it. Um, and I mean, and that's the case from even all levels of governance, right? Mm-hmm. Like people aren't building policies because they're bad people. They just have a limited frame of reference for yeah. perspective, right? So you're building, if it's all white males in a legislature, then they're building policy based on a white affluent male perspective, right? Mm-hmm. So they're leaving a lot of folks out to context of how things would impact different communities, right? And so I participated in the Summer Policy Institute that um, an organization that I later worked for, the Oklahoma Policy Institute hosted for college students. And I saw just like these folks from the nonprofit spaces who were focused on specific issues, who were weighing into conversations about homelessness, who were weighing into conversations about the criminal justice system, who were talking about, where we put our tax dollars, right? Because our state budget is a moral document and tells us what we prioritize most, right? Um, And so I was like, I wanna be one of those people at the table. And so the director of that program, uh, I mean, of that organization, um, just really became like a mentor to me. So even after I finished college, I applied for uh, a fellowship program um, and I was selected to to work in Arkansas because that summer I had a chance to do I, some policy work in Arkansas. I was wondering it. how you ended up in Arkansas. I was wondering yeah. like where that where where that where that ended up being. So you ended up getting selected to do that. So that's something that you yeah. Okay. Well, because in 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 grad school I did a program, um, what was called the Southern Education Leadership Initiative. Um, that's based in Atlanta, and they were picking people in the South because Oklahoma is different things to different people. So they don't, yeah, because they swear that we're not the South. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, there's, and actually, you know what, this is a a quick sidebar. There's parts of Oklahoma, apparently, that's considered the Ozarks, right? Um, So, like, Oklahoma is just such a unique place with so many different 
cultures and terrains within it. Um, but that they considered in this cohort that Oklahoma is the South based on many of our educational um, rankings and, and different That's wild. That and, so, um, and so I got pissed. This should not be placed. that funny to me that they were like, y'all ain't really that South? Oh, 48 in education? Oh, that sounds pretty Southern to me. <laughs> I mean, but even just like some of the histories in Oklahoma have some, yeah. you know, some similarities and things. And so they placed me in Arkansas that summer and I was studying um, disparities in school facilities. Okay. And I had the chance to um, go to different parts of Arkansas. And I was like, Jesus, be a fence around me. Cause I had to drive up to the little mountainous parts of like North Arkansas, mm. where like they had Confederate flags hanging different places. And I'm driving by myself trying, I'm like, Lord, please don't let me run out of the gas or my car break down or whatever. Mm. But, um, but it was really a, a enlightening experience because like i believe like when you're looking at information you have to uh disaggregate or break down the data to look at what exactly is happening in different communities there were some shared experiences among rural whites as the rural blacks in the Oklahoma, i mean in the arkansas delta right to where these folks because they don't have the tax base in their communities to be able to raise money for their schools were using um facilities that were decades years old there was one school building i went to um the roof barely cleared because like it was built like years ago when people weren't that tall so dre like your head may have hit the ceiling <laughs> um they still had like the green chalkboards they had you know the watermarks on the ceiling and then you would go to the suburban schools right so there is an area it called conway that i um usually compare to being like the edmund of okay. arkansas right because yeah. it's right outside of little rock their high school facility looks like a whole college mm -hmm. like they had state-of-the-art classrooms the classrooms are wide i mean there's research that talks about like the aesthetics having an impact on learning to where they had different walls that were different colors um they had these art studios that look like professional art studios they had the equipment in their health rooms with like the state-of-the-art dummies that you can learn how to like draw blood from or do the you know, cpr compressions in a high, a high school in a high school right in and so there's just school. no way that you can say that the kids who are lucky enough to live in conway are getting the same educational opportunity um, as the kids who have three people doing seven jobs in their school district, right? Yeah, there's no And barely no have way. access to AP classes, right? It's and crazy so, to me that, go ahead, go ahead. Well, and, and so I just spent my summer writing about it. And then there's a facilities program that they have about funding school facilities that had been underfunded for a long time. And so I created a documentary to tie the pieces because some of these lawmakers had never been to some of these other communities to of see what was really happening. It. And so I was able to present that documentary before a joint educational, uh, before their joint 
education committee at the Arkansas legislature. And I showed the video and then my director at that time wrote a report to compliment. And we were able to get, I think about $10 million put into that facility program. And so that really demonstrated to me, like the, A, the importance of like analysis and having the information and bringing the information to the table, but like being able to use our voice in this different way to really shape decisions that were happening. And so after my, after I graduated, from uh, grad school, I went back to Arkansas for two years to be their um, education policy analyst. Okay. So, so to do more work and build on that. So a few things that I kind of like seen and everything you're saying is a few things. Number one, it's, it's crazy how you see people who get, get like you get marginalized in a way either by lack of education or by really it's, it's all by lack of education to a degree, because you have, like you talk about the similarities in these communities that clearly when you go, when you drive through the hood in Arkansas, you're not seeing a bunch of Confederate flags and Trump stickers and stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like that's not, and I know the time frame. it wasn't no Trump stuff going on there. Cause it was a little bit before that, but yeah. um, still like that same vibe where it's like, this is what the, the policies that we advocate for in this community are of a detriment to us in ways that we don't even pay attention to. You know, like when you look at how many states have like that high population of 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 rural white community that don't have like Medicaid expansion or yes. don't have things that are direct failures of the people who represent them by not providing them access to. Right. But they've been successfully given another boogeyman to blame. So they're not even holding... That's what I was trying to say. It's an example of two communities who are not holding people accountable for two different yeah. reasons. One, for yeah. lack of understanding, because I feel like in the black community, we don't know who to hold accountable, which is why every black person- Because we're structurally thing, left out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Joe, Joe Biden did everything that's happened since Joe Biden was president. Anything negative that happened, anything they like, see, Joe Biden did it. It's like, that's a that's a city thing, bro. Like. Your mayor did yeah, that. Yeah. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like Joe Biden don't have shit to do with that. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, and, you know I mean? and dual dual federalism is complicated, right? Like having all of these different levels of government that do different functions mm-hmm. is hard for hell, the people who study this and do this work for a living to keep up with. So I could only imagine folks who are working multiple jobs, trying to take care of their kids and keep the lights on. Um being able to also follow when this random February school board election because you have to self-educate. That's yeah, the the issue yeah. with it is is that you have to self-educate in order yeah. to really know how these structures work, and it's just a burden that the white community doesn't have because the structures are already set up to benefit them. So educated sure. or not. It's pretty much going to work like you have a country where 85% of the people are just kind of hoping it works out. But out of that 85%, the white ones will pretty much be fine if you got a little bit of something and you got all these black and brown people who are still in that same boat of not understanding, not realizing that we don't have the luxury to be uninformed. And it's not I never say that to blame the people who are uninformed because it's not it's not our fault. But at the end of the day, it does become our burden. No, that's true. That's true. Uh, that's, I, I mean, and, and that there, that what you're saying is, is very valid, um, especially about like 
how some people have that privilege of benefiting from something, whether they're engaged or not, because when you have one group of people who take up a majority of elected offices across the country at nearly all levels of government, those perspectives are reflected in the ways that they make decisions, right? Yeah, 100%. And then that structurally, you know, pushes out the voices of LGBTQ Americans. It pushes out the viewpoints of black and brown folks. It pushes out the viewpoints of um, people who may be, you know, immigrants in different ways or, or people who are, are facing whatever the, the life situation yeah, is. Yeah, whatever, right? whatever so marginalizes when, you because there's so many marginalizing factors in America. It's never meant yes. to. I never, I always want to make that clear too. I always speak from the lens of being black because it's the thing that I am. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's not it's not because I don't know that there are all these other marginalized communities that have this unique yeah. experience within America. It's just that it's something I can't speak to. I'm black and I'm the most privileged of the blacks because I'm a black man. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I don't have all these lenses. I'm a black cis man. Like, I don't have any of the other markers except black. And it's crazy yeah. that we live in a world like that. But that's something that I try and be mindful of because... I never want to make it seem like I think only black people have problems. And I also don't ever want to make it seem like I don't understand that I don't have to eat all those problems the same way that other black people do. Like I have it as easy as a black person could have it. Only thing I could have had more is be rich. I wasn't born rich, but beyond that, you know, like it, it, I know that my experience is not. But even then there's just so many different like historical traumas and different things that people Mm -hmm. face in different communities. And even with, and I, and I appreciate the dialogue and the nuance about privilege because we all have different degrees of privilege, right? But mm-hmm. the reality is, is when your perspectives are not reflected or represented in different viewpoints, like it does affect what happens around you. Um, exactly. Like at the, at the state capitol, so my role currently is I am a lobbyist, right? I'm an advocacy and policy director um, for our food banks particularly. So I'm right now in the area of food insecurity. But even five years ago, when I was working with the Oklahoma Policy Institute as their outreach and legislative director, so I've been a lobbyist for, I think, a little over five years now. Um, I was the one, if not only, I'll say, if not only young Black woman lobbyist at the Capitol, right? Because most times- Not surprising at all. (laughs) <laughs> the people who are in that building are more fluent. They're former lawmakers. They're white, frankly, because mm-hmm. the pathways in that career career field are based on relationships. And who do you typically have relationships with, right? People you have proximity to. Mm-hmm. And who do we typically have proximity to? People who look like us. Mm-hmm. And if the people who are in that Capitol building look like one group of people, then that's going to be the folks who are likely reflected in things related to government, right? And so that's why, Mm -hmm. like, there are a lot of stressful days. (laughs) There are a lot of challenges I've faced, especially from being, you know, the minority in so many different ways at that building. But it matters that they have some... Because there was a time, actually, I was afraid of wearing braids at the Capitol. I was afraid of getting my hair twisted. I believe it. 
because I didn't want to be looked at as an outsider that no one was going to take seriously. Um, I already had people wondering if I was an intern. I had a lawmaker at one time refer to me to a friend as a little black girl. Right. And so like, but one thing that I have like grown to be confident in is my ability to do this work and to hustle and strategize in ways to still get the outcomes that I need to get that many people will never understand. Cause like, in fact, there was a time I did a panel um, and there was uh, what we call in-house lobbyists mm. and um, contract lobbyists. So your in-house lobbyists are the folks who work with one organization and they're paid to represent one interest, right? That's, that's what I do. That's what you do. Cause you work, you work um, for the, for the food bank. Yeah. And, okay. and the, Contract lobbyists are the folks who are basically those guns for hire. Yeah. They represent whatever issues they're paid to talk to lawmakers about. And often those are the folks who have a lot of power because they have access to monies where they can take lawmakers Money. out to dinners, they can give to campaigns and all that kind of stuff. And most times, and I won't say like all in-house lobbyists, but many of us, especially those who you know, do advocacy work and policy work in the nonprofit space, don't have that luxury, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and y'all, so y'all was, just trying to get it done on the, on the merit that it needs to be done. Is, is that, I, I, and I'm only specifying that because I want to be sure that like, because I think that that's a distinction that people who see things not being done from the outside don't really understand is that mm-hmm. the people who are advocating for the things that you probably want to see done, the things that you think are like moral imperatives for society are probably doing them with that as their fuel. The people who are advocating for other things got a big ass bag of money. Right. You know what I'm saying? That they carry into every meeting in one way or another, whether it be a donation, whether it be a where we even having this. I would mm-hmm. imagine that when you want to talk to somebody one on one, you pulling up to their office. You know what I'm saying? Are yeah. you asking them if they could come by mm-hmm. the office or can I meet you yeah. here? They talking about well, yeah. where would you like to? You here? Yeah. yeah, they 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 taking people out to dinner and we drinking. They going to the fundraisers and I mean a lot of the work that happens at the Capitol is often outside of those hours because there's a lot of conversations or relationship building and things. So I was in that, I was in that panel discussion because we were talking to some students mm-hmm. and the contract lobbyist just kept trying to like demean me essentially in front of these students. So I finally had to say like, I got seven years of experience in this business. I don't not, I don't need to be lectured on how to do my job. And she was just like, well, seven years is a long time. And, and so there's just all these just microaggressions that you constantly have to um, navigate because um, I mean, I had students just messaging me in that chat box, like, we are so sorry. And they were angry for me. And I had to keep my composure because that's what black women have to do. Right. You saw the Straight um, up. you have to you, you saw the um, the, the hearings for Kentaji mm-hmm. uh, Jackson Brown mm-hmm. for the Supreme Court. I she did. had to keep her composure and withstanding just all kinds of questions that had nothing to do with the qualification, she is overqualified for the job and still had to endure all kinds of, you know, and, and, outlandish and, questioning. And it's okay. the it's the demeanor that you talk about that she had to keep because when you when you contrast that to Kavanaugh's confirmation and <laughs> when women are like, Yeah, but he raped me when we was younger. He like turned a red in the face, damn near talking about yeah, he might as well have been on the stand talking about that. Bitch lying. Like, that's how I felt like I was watching him the whole time. Get mad about beer. Like, and, and we, we who don't have, have a few beers? Who says I'm aggressive? 
Jose, you know what I'm saying? And we don't have the luxury to respond, even though like we can have, cause Dre, you said it earlier. And when we first started, you can have all of the knowledge in the world and all of the credentials. And sometimes it still may not be enough, right? And so that's something I had to navigate, especially because it can foster a sense of imposter syndrome inside of you that I had to work through to know that I'm capable of doing these things. I mean, I crafted a strategy and organized a coalition that got a predatory lending bill uh, vetoed by Governor Fallon back in the day, right? I advanced strategy that helped um, kill legislation that would have cut um, access to Medicaid for a whole lot of families across the state, right? I helped advance legislation um, that would have like helped our state budget in different ways, you know what I'm saying? And so there's just so many different things I've been able to do in my career and not because I'm the smartest person or whatever, but I've had to learn how to strategize Mm-hmm. build those relationships and frankly grind in this work to be able to to reach those outcomes and still and in a hostile do good work environment people in a hostile environment yeah you're not in california right. like it's not like i think that's that's another reason why i think the work that you do is a so important it's so important to highlight what you have to go through to get it done and the fact that you really are up there like in a war with a six shooter you know, like you, you got a pistol, you know what I'm saying? And they got, they got tanks up there. It's like, yeah. it's, it's. The or sometimes that, a butter knife, right? Like, yeah, right. I, I like, and I would, <laughs> uh, uh, an assumption that I have and a question that I'll just ask you is I would assume that, is it, do you find it more difficult to advocate for things that are specifically for black or brown communities because you're kind of like, the only black face in the room like is it kind of like well of course of course you think this is an issue like do you feel like you come across that i i feel like because or or i will even just to, to make the question a little bit more clear do you feel like sometimes you may have to frame things in a way even if your intent may be like like kind of flashback to when you're talking about school policy in arkansas when you saw those white kids in those conditions did it ring off to you this is the way to make this problem a little easier to solve for two communities that mirror each other if i make this one the face well my my job is to connect the dots right okay and proximity and relatability helps to connect those dots now with that i give the caveat that i do not believe in sugarcoating issues right i believe that we have to speak truth but there is a way to speak it in a way that helps people digest the information. Yeah, you got to say it in so, a way it'll be received or else it's pointless. Yeah, but we can't not say mm-hmm. that there are disparities that exist between black and white households. Yeah. Right. Or black and, and indigenous households. I mean, black yeah. indigenous Especially households in Oklahoma, versus yeah. white households. Right. Like we can't not talk about how um, policy systemic issues and structural issues over time affect some more than others, right? We can't, like, I I believe in using words, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if we're going to talk about, you know, what ways of, like, when we talk about, like, what's happening in communities and policing, like, we can't not talk about, you know, the issues of police violence and police brutality, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but I do believe that there are ways that we can frame the issue to help 
find where there's common ground. So like, for example, I was mentioning that predatory lending legislation that we were able, that, that impacts black and brown communities more frequently because they often set up shop in our communities, yeah. right? And they often prey on people who are facing the hardest times, right? Mm -hmm. I was able to work with one of the most conservative lawmakers in the legislature at that time. We worked together to write some uh, op-eds in the paper about the issue. And so he was able to hit some audiences that I wasn't able to touch, right? Yeah. And so sometimes it's even about the right coalition building to, to move messages. Yeah. And so- um, That's what, po that's, that's the thing that I think people don't realize what politics is in a lot of cases is not the person who you want, and I know you're not an you're you're not an elected official. You influence elected officials. You know what I'm saying? Like right, you know what I'm saying. Right. So it's it is. I'm not trying to to parallel that. I want to make that clear. But yeah. for all the people who are working in the space, they feel like the people who are advocating for my thing are just supposed to get it done. They're supposed to go yeah. up there and make it happen. But it's it's like realistically speaking, it's the people have power. Yeah. At the end of the at the end of the day those folks whose names are on the door care about the people who could get them elected or send them home, right? And so that's where I believe that although I'm there to influence lawmakers, we also have to have that people power, putting that pressure on them and having that level of accountability. I'll, I'll bring up the, the best example, um, the Julius Jones case. Julius Jones was set to be executed in Oklahoma, right? For something um, he just didn't do. Right. There's like, a lot of evidence pointing to his innocence, mm -hmm. but because of our belief system of justice in the state of when somebody is wronged, you know, having some type of accountability like the death penalty, there's some folks who are bought into just killing him without doing the due diligence, right? Mm -hmm. There were people in Oklahoma City, Julius's family, number one, from day one but also local activists like rapper JB and business owner, right? Mm -hmm. You had um, my girl Francie, you had Jess Eddie, you had like all of these different, Cece Davis Jones, right? Who was a minister who happened to move to Oklahoma around the right time, felt conviction about this case and dedicated her time to making sure he doesn't get executed, right? The snowball of hit to where people across the country were talking about Julius. They applied mm -hmm. enough pressure to the governor, right? They appealed to the pardon and parole board who made the recommendation that his sentence should be commuted, right? And literally to the wire, the governor could have made the decision to allow him to be executed, right? Mm -hmm. But the people put enough pressure because originally he was like, that's gonna be it like it seemed like an uphill battle to save his life it's, and enough people showed up and that man is still alive today he's he's still in, he's still incarcerated so there's more work to be done true. but he's alive today because of the work people did to show up right so that and that's that something a lobbyist can't stop that is a huge point in two ways because yeah. you talk about how like it is the power of the people who who make all that happen and there's an inverse that i think doesn't get spoken of in a way that people are comfortable accepting often enough. And what I mean by that is the the inverse of that is also the reason why 
Governor State didn't do it faster or was unwilling to do it or didn't commute it all the way around is because he's aware of the people who he um uh he's aware that the people in uh in his circle I see um uh the people that his he's no he knows that his constituents will view that as a move that like they don't they aren't in line with it doesn't it doesn't yeah. align with those so because and not to I don't even look at and it. Was, it wasn't weird. in line because, in fact, there was some polling about where do conservatives stand on this. And allegedly there was a majority. Uh, and this was by a conservative pollster who mm -hmm. was trying to say that a majority of conservative Oklahomans basically support his execution, that it would be the wrong political decision to do. But there was enough people power mm -hmm. to push him to even go against the alleged position of the base right mm -hmm. and so we cannot underestimate the power that we have to influence decisions yeah i like that i like that and i know i know that we have we have kept you this, these interviews they go so fast like that's that's the thing i love most about them especially if you get comfortable and you start talking like you look up and you're like dang it's really already been an hour like but um no, I really, really, really appreciate you coming. Um, I really appreciate you doing this. You have an open invite to come back anytime you want. Well, I can't wait to come back. You want so, so please be sure to use that. Is there anything that you before you get out of here? Is there anything that you want to that you want to say? Um, I'll just say thank you, Dre, for um, giving me the opportunity just to chat and catch up and talk about some really important things. Um, I am always doing work to connect people to their government for their government to be responsive to them. So feel free to follow me on Twitter at Bailey M Perkins. Um, you can add me as a friend on LinkedIn or find me on Facebook or whatever. Let's connect um, because I love to plug people into um, our, our civic system, right? And because and, it's up to us to change it. And so Dre, I appreciate your time and um, can't wait to come back. Definitely. I appreciate you coming on. You definitely showed that you, the, the conversation was a lot. We appreciate you um, as a, as someone, I don't live in Oklahoma anymore. I live in Houston now, but I appreciate the work that you do as a whole, just as somebody who comes from the same community as you both as in literally come from the same community as you. I, one of the houses I grew up on is literally a, a right around the corner from where your family uh, mm -hmm. house is over there uh, uh, off Gore or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, and just knowing that, seeing that all the stuff you have to go through in order to get this work done, the challenge that you go through, just know that we all here uplifted you through that because we appreciate, appreciate it. We it. know that there are days that you wake up and it's like, Oh, <laughs> so, listen my you. community keeps me grounded so thank you for always being a part of my community so appreciate you oh all right we will see you next time see you next time <laughs> all right peace yeah double up the respect Came through the wire, fresh out the fire, my mic check. Leaning and rocking, feel it yourself, it's high tech. Moving pieces all on the board, my nigga trying to see. Mm. My gift to God, honest. 
Escape trials and tribulations, fighting your honor. Shark in the water, grabbing for paper like I'm Nirvana. Code of honor that I follow, my nigga, is worth billions. Huh. Homie, fuck your greasy granny them. He been slapping shit so long, they gotta come and Grammy him. He so fly, he walk on stars, solar systems carry him. Bank account status when they marry him. Billion. Uh, make sure you say it two times. Dre, Dre, nigga. Make sure you say it two times. <laughs> Trying to see the salad with the croutons. Laying the foes down like futons for the billion. Yeah, man, you're not tuning in. Fuck this shit podcast. And billions 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 and bill